Thank you, gentlemen. That's actually my favorite kind of music, just so you know. I didn't even request it, so it just was a pleasant surprise. I uh, grew up on listening to, of course, Gaither Vocal Band, as I've shared with you, or the King's Heralds. Someone was talking to me today about how we need to bring the King's Heralds, and I was thinking, well, we got, we got them right there. Just, they did one during Sabbath school, too. You only need to learn about 10 more songs, and we'll have a whole concert, so uh, we'll be ready. We'll be ready. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the gifts that you've given in this church, uh, from the organ, the piano, the voices we've heard. Lord, we thank you for your ministry to us already in this worship service. And as we open your word, please teach us in these next few minutes. In your name we pray. Amen. The primary unit of the community, whether it be secular community or the church community is the home and we look around and we recognize that that unit of the community is becoming more and more damaged with each and every passing year now we don't have that just on our own observation but we understand that based even on the statistics that we read Statistics tell us that 41% of all first-time marriages will end in divorce, that 60% of second marriages end in divorce, and that 73% of third marriages end in divorce. We know that something causes these divorces. There is some sort of dysfunction. There is some lack of health within these family units. There are some that believe that the rates are just as high within the Christian community, although uh, those are not exactly accurate. The numbers are a little bit skewed. In some of the studies that they've done, the numbers are skewed in that anyone who claims to believe in God, they put down as a Christian and then put down them as a statistic. They found, though, that, that, that those numbers are a little bit off. And those that regularly attend church or serve in their church, those that regularly participate in Bible study and in prayer time are actually, uh, are actually 20% less likely, or 35%, sorry, 35% less likely to get divorced than the general population, which is a good thing. This is good because one of the primary roles, one of the primary roles of Christianity is and always has been to be a contrast to the culture. So as we see uh, families being more broken and there being more challenges within families, we see more and more uh, violence within families as we see more and more dysfunction within families, what should actually happen within the, the Christian home and the Christian dynamic is that it becomes more of an example of what, uh, a, a contrast to what is actually taking place within the culture. Now, the statistics paint the picture that we should be active in our faith in order to live out the example of these relationships. But, but we know that even within our own homes, there are struggles with health. We know that there is abuse that takes place. We know that there are, are dysfunctionalities within uh, Christian homes as well. Statistics are not the rule of faith. Rather, the word of God is the rule of faith, and thus it is the word of God that we look to to say, okay, what is the baseline? What is the foundation 
for a healthy relationship? What is the foundation for a healthy Christian relationship? And so I want to start there in Colossians chapter 3. If you'll open your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to start in, in verse 1. This is not our primary text for the morning, but we're going to start in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse one, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the baseline for our study today. As we look and talk about healthy relationships, we must recognize and fully acknowledge that in and of ourselves and, and in our sinful nature and our sinful mindsets, it is actually impossible for us to really truly have healthy relationships. We are sinners, each and every one of us. We all struggle with sin. And in our own nature, in our own struggle, we will, will, will typically follow the way of the world. But if we're to be a contrast to the world, we must do as this text says, which is fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God. That we must recognize that our lives, that we have died to self, and that our lives are hidden in Christ. In other words, Christ is working in us. What I'm saying basically is I talked to you today about, about healthy relationships and the dynamics of healthy relationships. I'm not saying that this is something that we can do on our own power. We must have that baseline recognition that this is only through the power of Jesus that we can truly be an example to the world of what healthy relationships look like. And so with that in mind, I want us to jump down to Colossians chapter 3 and verse, verse 18 for our primary text. With the focus in mind that Christian commitment to healthy relationships must be a Christian commitment to the Lord, and that should affect each and every one of our households. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. The scripture reads, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I want to pause really quick. I want to pause quickly here. Uh, before all of the single people tune out. I've talk, I started talking about divorce. Then I am now, read the text, wives, submit to your, uh, yourselves, to your husbands. And if you've already tuned out, please join me one more time just for a few minutes. The default assumption it, when we hear a text like this is to assume is to assume that this text is only speaking to those who are in nuclear families or who are in a husband and wife relationship. Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, I don't believe that Paul intended this only to be heard by those that were, were married, but rather the, the, the principles of this passage are to go beyond that. I also think that Paul recognized that there would be those in his midst that were not living in these circumstances, and yet this message could be a blessing to them as well. One of the reasons I believe that is based on the Scripture itself. If you just go over one page to Colossians chapter 4, and Paul is, is giving his, his, his salutations. He's saying goodbye in, in this letter to the church of Colossae. And Paul says in, in uh, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Nympha was the church leader. 
It was a house church, but she was, it was still a church, and she was the leader of this church. Gordon Fee, a, a scholar, a commentator, presumes, and I believe rightly so, that since the church was under her leadership and in what is defined as, as her house, she was probably single or a widow. There was probably not a husband in the picture. So how then would, would Nympha hear Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18? Would, would Paul write this and think, well, Nympha, you can just tune out at this moment in time. You don't need to listen to this. You don't need to hear anymore. I'm talking about wives submitting to husbands. Since you're not a wife, since you're a single mother, yes, you have your church, but, 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 but you don't need to pay attention to what I'm saying right now. I don't believe that is the case. I believe in the case of, of Nympha, there were, although there was no husband to submit to, uh, therefore, she would have to assume uh, the head of household role in whatever relationships may have existed in her home. She would have had to adjust what Paul was saying to others to apply them to her circumstances. In other words, we see even here in the scriptures that there have been, there are now, and there will always be circumstances in which how, in, in households where adjustments are necessary as we read this text. In other words, if you are a single parent, a single mother, or a, or a single father, if you are a widow, if you are a, a married couple with grown children, even this text, this, the text that we're going to look at today can even apply to you. This is not a sermon about marriage per se, but rather a sermon about healthy relationships and the underlying theme that resides in the three verses that we're going to look at today is one that can benefit each and every one of us in our relationships no matter who you are and no matter what the dynamic of your family is. Colossians chapter 3 verse 18 says, wives submit to your husbands and then there is this key phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. All of us are in some sort of relationships and all of us should recognize that underlying principle that all of our relationships should be done in a context and in a manner that is fitting to the Lord and in honor to the Lord. Well, what is fitting to the Lord? Well, Paul here, I believe, is telling us in these verses what is actually fitting and honorable to the Lord. Paul says, wives, submit your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, there might be some that have a bit of a feminism bent that would maybe oppose or rebuff this statement. But even if you have some feministic bent there, I don't think there is a need for you to be bothered by this. Paul uses what is known in the Greek as the middle voice of the verb. In other words, he's implying that the action is to be carried out by her, not by demand of a law or some universal law that orders masculine dominance, but rather Paul is saying, submit your husband, love your husband, show respect to your husband as, as a willing choice of love, of your relationship. Now this is a radical concept and it is contrasted to the day of the age. Remember I said that one of our roles as Christians is to continually be a contrast to the world. Our job is not to look more and more like the world from week to week. Our job is to contrast the world more and more in our lives. And, and so Paul here is, is setting up a contrast to the world. In this day and age, in both the Jewish and the Greek cultures, there were laws in place that demanded a wife 
be subservient to her husband. There were laws in place that demanded that a wife, by law, had to submit to her husband. Paul's saying, I don't want you to operate in your marriage that way. I don't want you to think about your relationship in that way. I don't want you to think about this male-female dynamic in a, in a way of, of, of a demand, but rather as something that you willingly submit to because of your relationship with Christ. And then Paul does this even further to contrast the society of the day. Paul places a boundary on this submission. He says, as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, in a Christian home, in a Christian home, submission, the submission of a wife, shouldn't, a wife shouldn't be expected to submit to just any whim and demand of her husband. There are some people, there are some men include, still that believe this should be the case. But in a Christian home, Paul is saying a wife is not to be expected to submit to just any whim or demand of her husband, but only to the degree that the Lord would expect her to show respect and honor to the dynamic of that relationship. A respect and honor that is then correspondingly to be reciprocated in the Christian home by the husband as Paul indicates in the very next verse. Chapter three, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. This love, this, this word love plays the role of in the Lord, uh, or the context of, of in connection to our relationship with God of the previous verse. Because it is referring to the highest ideal of love. I'm sure that most of you know this, but for a quick review, there are four different kinds of love referenced in the New Testament. There's phileo love. This love speaks of affection, of fondness, of, of, a, of a general liking of something or, or someone. Phileo love, we get the word Philadelphia out of this word, the city of brotherly love. I have met some Philadelphians, they are nice, just don't go to a sporting event or you will not believe that is actually a true axiom. So phileo, this is just a general kind of liking or fondness or affection for someone or something. Then there's a storge, which is uh, another type of love that's mentioned in the Greek. This love has its basis in one's own nature. This is kind of just a natural love that people feel, a natural affection or natural obligation that people feel. There's a natural affection that occurs some, uh, most of the time between spouses, and just general natural affection or protection type of attitude towards them. There's a natural affection that occurs between a parent and a child. There is a natural affection that occurs between a dog and a dog owner. That's storge love. Hopefully your love for your animal does not go much beyond that type of love. That is a storge love. I know some of you like to dress up your animals and uh, other things as well. But that is another type of love. So there's phileo, just a general fondness or liking. There's storge love, which is just kind of a natural love. Uh, really, uh, uh, anyone can, can experience this type of love. This is not based on a general uh, Christian or non-Christian feeling. Then there's eros love. This love is erotic love. And the, the basic idea of, of eros love is that it is a love based on self-satisfaction. It would be the type of love that would, would lend someone to say something, I love you because you make me happy. Or I love you because you always keep our house so clean. Or I love you because you always look good when we go out in public. It's, it's a type of love that's based on what can you do 
to look, make me look good or be a blessing unto me in some way. I love you because of what you do for me. That's eros. That's an eros type of love. And then there's a the love that many of us have heard of, and it is the love known as agape or agapao, oftentimes used in the Bible. And agape love is called, it's a type of love that is called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object that of the object love. It is the noblest word for love in the Greek language. There is no higher word for love. Agape love is the exact opposite of eros. Agape love is not kindled by the merit of or worth of something. Agape love is not kindled by, by what the person does for you or by what something does for you. Agape love delights in giving. It delights in, in, in sharing with the other person. This love is the type of love that keeps on loving even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, and even at times maybe unworthy. It is an unconditional love. And Paul tells, Paul speaking here to the church in Colossae says, husbands, love your wives. Which type of love do we think he's using here to, ref, to express this? Of course, agape love. Paul tells the men, agape your wives. Love your wives with an unconditional love. The presence of agape love prevented in that culture and in the Christian culture, what Paul is basically saying is in this culture, the abuse of power, the abuse of your position as the head of household, the abuse of your role as the patriarch in family cannot be in existence with agape love truly presence. And then Paul reemphasizes this reality by saying, and do not be harsh with them. And do not be harsh with them. In this month where the church is focusing on our End It Now campaign, and this Sabbath in particular, in which we call for an end to abuse in relationships, the one, this text, above all others, should probably sell it for us. The idea that within relationships there should be agape love, and there should be, there should be not, there should not be any even, or even any harshness amongst the relationship. Now let's face it. We typically, we can struggle with being harsh. I was listening to the lady during the Sabbath school hour and I was appreciating what she said. She said, with all of us, most abuse is formulated not out of, out of just a desire to abuse, but out of a, 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 a lack of kindness and a harshness that builds up within the relationship and it starts slowly and it's pressures from the outside and then it's oftentimes taken out on those that are nearest to us. She said we should all take five. She said whether that's five feet, five seconds, five deep breaths. Maybe some of us need five hours to go and figure out how not to be harsh in some ways. But there should not even be harshness. Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not even be harsh with them. Do not be har even harsh with them. When we become abusive in relationships, whether verbally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, we are showing that we're living by an eros type of love. Love based on the idea of you're not making me happy right now so I can be unkind to you. I can be inconsiderate to you. And abuse still does happen as we talked about. One in three women and one in four men have been victims of some sort of abuse, partner abuse in their lives. 
Again, what Paul was saying was that a standard should be set for the day. In other words, in our churches, in Christian homes, there should be a standard set against this type of relationship. Our relationships, our homes should be full of agape love. Our relationships outside of our home should be full of agape love as well. Paul is setting a contrast to society. First, he's saying, don't love your husbands because of law or don't be submit to your husbands simply out of law, but, but submit to them out of the love that you have for God. There are boundaries on what you must submit to, but still honor and respect that relationship. Husbands, love your wives, not as, as chattel, but, but, but with an unconditional love that you have in Jesus, the love that exists only by your relationship with Jesus. The text, though, does not end there, and there is more that I believe is applicable to us in this world in which we live. Verse 20 goes on. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. My sons were in first service, and I asked them to especially listen to this text. And then I, remind, I let them know, though, it was okay because Daddy was going to... Uh, get scolded in just a second as well as the text continues on. But this idea of calling children to obey their parents was another radical idea. In this, in some commentaries I read this week, once a child, particularly a male child, was beyond the age of seven, he was accountable only unto dad. He no longer actually had to pay respect or honor to the mom, to the wife. But obedience is called for in this text, and respect is called for to both parents, not just the dad, but to the mother as well. And this is not just speaking of, of younger children or even uh, children that are adolescents or maybe even teenagers. Most scholars believe this is speaking to children of all ages. It's addressing the reality that in that day and age, uh, oftentimes family units stayed together from birth till death. There was a connection there. And that, and that Paul is saying, in your family structures, children, you are to continue to give obedience and respect to your parents. Not just to dad, but to both mom and dad. Again, Paul is contrasting the standard of the age. He's contrasting the, 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 the expectations of the age, and he's saying the church should be at another level. The family dynamics within the church should be at another level. Really, this should have already been embedded into the Judeo-Christian culture, as the fifth commandment, of course, tells us to honor thy father and thy mother. And yet, as we know, that even though we know the commandments, the commandments are sometimes easy to say and harder to follow. And in this culture, the women had been placed back and, and no longer was there an emphasis on the respect of the mother, but only on respect of the father. And Paul is saying, no, that's not acceptable. There should be respect for both parents. But Paul doesn't end there. Again, Paul then now goes back to the dads, back to the men in the home. And he says in verse 21, fathers, do not provoke, provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, while the attention moves off of mom, I think again of what we said at the beginning. We have to apply this to the principle within our homes. There are some single mothers in here. There are some, some single parents in here. And those moms serve as the head of their household. There are some moms in here who the father is quite 
uh, who is absentee and, and not often present. And in many ways, the mom then serves as the head of the household in that dynamic. And, and so this would apply as well for them. And again, Paul is bucking culture. He's contrasting culture, the cultural position with the admonition to the church in Colossae that parents should, should be kind to their children. Why was this important? Well, there was this law. There was this law in that day known as Patria Potestas, the law of the father's power. Patria Potestas. And under it, a dad could do anything with his children. He could sell them into slavery. He could make them work a life of, la- of a laborer on the farm. He could forbid them or prevent them from being marriage- married. He could d- condemn a child to death and even carry out that execution himself without any consequences. These things did actually happen in their culture because their culture trained folk to believe that children were secondary. Folk, we still have parts of the world that hold to these ideals, and we even still have parents that hold to some of these basic ideals within our world and even in our nation. Now, most of us would not think to, to hold to such extremes, but we, knew no, we do know that while it is often said in jest, there is a little bit of the dynamic sometimes where I am the parent, you are the children, just shut up and be the child. We say little jokes, kind of in that regard, maybe in jest, but there's some validity to them. I've heard parents say, the only reason I ever had kids was because I needed someone to take care of me when I was older. I got a really loud amen in first service on that. I'm glad we didn't quite get that same amen on that. Or some people think to themselves, well, our kids are basically workers. I put food on their table. I put a roof over the head. I put clothes on their back. I send them to school. They need to just do what I ask, whether it's A, B, C, or D, and not ask any questions because I'm the parent and they are the child. There are homes, even in our midst, that sometimes probably function in that way. But Paul says to parents, patria potestis, the, the rule of the father, does not apply in the Christian home. Dads, do not provoke your children. What does this mean, do not provoke your children? A thought I read, and I'm not really sure where I read it, but it stayed in my head, I believe applies here. It was this, let parents see to it that they deserve obedience, and more than this, that they make obedience easy. How do we not provoke our children? How do we not bring them to discouragement. Yes, we show them that we deserve obedience. We don't demand obedience. We show that we deserve obedience. And more than this, we make obedience easy. How can we make obedience hard? Menander said she believed that that obedience was hard to achieve when there is any type of threatening or hurting going on in a relationship. Obedience is hard to achieve. Now, you may get some form of obedience, but not true heart obedience. She said a father, and maybe sometimes a moms, who is always threatening and does not receive, uh, who is always threatening, does not receive much reverence. And one should correct a child not by hurting him, but by persuading that child. Think about your own relationship with Jesus. 
Think about your own relationship with Jesus as you are dealing with your children or as you are dealing with your spouse. Think about your own relationship with Jesus as you're dealing with those that, that are around you and your relationships with one another. Jesus, as we see in our relationships with him, that Jesus uses grace time and time again to teach us to obey his, or to, not to obey, but to keep his commandments. What a lot of us try to do in our homes and what a lot of us try to do in relationships and, and sometimes even within the church, what a lot of times seems to happen is, is we tend to use the law to, to make sure people don't break the law rather than keeping the law. There's a big difference. There's people that are wander around trying to make sure they don't break the law and that's a lot different than people trying who, who desire to keep the law, keep God's commandments. Grace teaches us to keep them, and a rigid, stern, ruling, and iron fist teaches people to not break the law. The problem with this, folks, and I think here of a quote from Mrs. White, and I don't have it on paper, but it's in my brain, where she talks about how if we make too many rules and we make everything a rule, Eventually, what it teaches our children to do, while they may obey us at home, it eventually teaches them, it eventually teaches them to not only break our rules, to not keep our rules, but not to keep the laws of God either. This is what it's talking about, making it hard to be obedient. Hard to be obedient. You know, in probably most of our homes, that at times we are provoking our children. We are telling them, don't do that, don't do this, why? Because I said so, and we move on. We are yelling at them, we are counting. If you don't stop this, one, two, and we become menacing. I don't know if any of you ever become menacing to your children, I've become menacing at times to my children. We are provoking our children. But Paul says, patria protestis should not be applied in the Christian home. Do not provoke your children. Do not discourage them. Here's the thing. Even if they are not obedient, we should still labor and work with them. And these three verses are practical lessons that all of us can really apply today and immediately begin to have healthier relationships. Wives can, can, can say, okay, where am I not showing respect in my relationship to my husband. Not because the law demands it, but because, because I'm willing out of my love for the Lord. A husband can immediately ask the question, okay, am I loving my wife with unconditional love or do I have this aspect of my love that is reserved only if she does certain things to please me? We can look at our relationships with those younger than us and those under our authority and we can ask the question, are we being respectful to those relationships and those younger can say are we obeying those above us and respecting those above us in a world which the more important most important unit of society is crumbling on a on a more more frequent basis wouldn't it be advantageous for us the church to set the contrast for the world of what a home with Jesus is truly supposed to look like and what relationships with Jesus are truly supposed to look like that should be our mission as a church, to say, does my home contrast the world enough that those around me will see something different and say that I want to know what is different about their home, about their lives. I thought about closing 
with a simple reminder. But I, I feel that before I close it, that we should point out one thing. And as a man, I want to speak to my fellow men that are in the room. I'm not sure, men, if you notice this in the text, but it seems like the greatest responsibility in those verses that we read in all the major relationships of our life, it seems to fall at the feet of the men. Women, submit to your husbands in what is fitting with the Lord. But men, the Bible says, you are to love your wives with an agape love, an unconditional love, meaning that even if your wife doesn't submit, even if she doesn't show honor or respect, we are still to love unconditionally. We are still to avoid being harsh. Love is not based on their actions, but rather based on what God has done in us. And when it says, children, obey your parents in everything, but then it says, but dads, do not provoke your children. And I believe it's saying, even if they don't, even if they don't obey you in everything, don't seek to break them. Our children are not wild horses. They are not dogs to be broken. A statement by Ellen White that has been used corporately this week, and appropriately so, but I believe it applies to us personally in our relationships as well with our children or with others. No one was ever reclaimed from a wrong position by censure and reproach. No one was ever reclaimed from a wrong position by censure and reproach. But many are thus driven further from the right path and led to harden their hearts against conviction. A spirit of kindness, a courteous forbearing deportment may save the erring and hide a multitude of sins. Man, it seems from the passage that we read today, which I believe is also in contrast to our modern culture, Paul is reminding us that, that much good or bad in the home and in relationships, even within the church, I would say, relies upon the men. So we, men, should be the first ones every morning to be found at the throne and at the feet of Jesus. We, men, should be the first ones to be seeking guidance in our discipline of our children. We should be the first ones asking for patience and forgiveness in our relationships as we go throughout our day. I believe that the text lands on men not as a rule of they are more important or more valuable, but I believe that God knew in his wisdom that when the man is not walking with Jesus, that it affects the home in a tremendous, tremendous way. In our text today, in our text today, the collective body of this text, we see a dynamic. William Barclay says this, the Christian ethic of healthy relationships is one of mutual obligation in which the rights and obligations rest with both man and woman. It is an ethic of mutual responsibility and therefore becomes an ethic where the thought of privilege and rights falls into the background and where the thought of duty and obligation becomes paramount. The whole direction of Christian relationships that's found and illustrated in Colossians chapter 3 is not to ask, what do others owe me? But the underlying and the foundational ethic of all of our Christian relationships is to ask, what do I owe to others? Let us pray. Jesus, I pray that we We'll have healthy homes, that we'll have a healthy church, that we'll have healthy relationships as we relate one to another. Lord, help us not to be seeking how others can do for us, but Lord, may we be seeking in all ways to say, what do I owe to those around me? What do I owe 
to my wife, to my husband? What do I owe to my children? What do I owe to the person that sits next to me in church? What do I owe to my colleague at work? What do I owe to the stranger that I meet on the street? Jesus, in all our relationships, may they be healthy because they are filled with your love and they are thinking of others first. In your name we pray, amen.